Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring to life the greatest science fiction, fantasy and speculative fiction stories ever written. I am committed to providing these weekly audio narrations free and without adverts in the middle breaking up the flow of the story. If you'd like to support The Well-Told Tale and get access to some exclusive patron-only benefits, please do consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's also a link in the description. Today we reach the finale of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. The Time Traveller is still trapped 800,000 years in the future. The Morlocks, that mysterious subterranean race, have his time machine. He has set his mind to reclaiming it, and returning to his own time with Weena, the Eloy he has become friends with. So pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy the final part of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Chapter 11 The Palace of Green Porcelain I found the Palace of Green Porcelain, when we approached it about noon, deserted and falling into ruin. Only ragged vestiges of glass remained, and great sheets of the green facing had fallen away from the corroded metallic framework. It lay very high upon a turfy down, and looking northeastwards before I entered it, I was surprised to see a large estuary, or even a creek, where I judged Wandsworth or Battersea must once have been. I thought then, though I never followed up the thought, of what might have happened, or might be happening, to the living things in the sea. The material of the palace proved on examination to be indeed porcelain, and along the face of it I saw an inscription in some unknown character. I thought, rather foolishly, that Weena might help me to interpret this, but I only learnt that the bare idea of writing had never entered her mind. She always seemed to me, I fancy, more human than she was. Within the big valves of the door, which were open and broken, we found, instead of the customary hall, a long gallery lit by many side windows. At the first glance I was reminded of a museum. The tiled floor was thick with dust, and a remarkable array of miscellaneous objects was shrouded in the same grey covering. Then I perceived, standing strange and gaunt in the centre of the hall, what was clearly the lower part of a huge skeleton. I recognised by the oblique feet that it was some extinct creature after the fashion of the Megatherium. The skull and the upper bones lay beside it in the thick dust, and in one place, where rainwater had dropped through a leak in the roof, the thing itself had been worn away. Further in the gallery was the huge skeleton barrel of a brontosaurus. My museum hypothesis was confirmed. Going towards the side, I found what appeared to be sloping shelves, and clearing away the thick dust, I found the old familiar glass cases of our time but they must have been airtight to judge from the fair preservation of some of their contents. Clearly, we stood among the ruins of some latter-day South Kensington. Here, apparently, was the paleontological section, and a very splendid array of fossils it must have been, though the inevitable process of decay that had been staved off for a time, and had, through the extinction of bacteria and fungi, lost 99 hundredths of its force, was nevertheless, with extreme sureness, if with extreme slowness, at work again upon all its treasures. Here and there, 
I found traces of the little people in the shape of rare fossils broken to pieces or threaded in strings upon reeds, and the cases had in some instances been bodily removed by the Morlocks, as I judged. The place was very silent. The thick dust deadened our footsteps. Wiener, who had been rolling a sea urchin down the sloping glass of a case, presently came as I stared about me and very quietly took my hand and stood beside me. And at first I was so much surprised by this ancient monument of an intellectual age that I gave no thought to the possibilities it presented. Even my preoccupation about the time machine receded a little from my mind. To judge from the size of this place, this palace of green porcelain had a great deal more in it than a gallery of paleontology. Perhaps historical galleries, it might be even a library. To me at least, in my present circumstances, these would be vastly more interesting than this spectacle of old-time geology and decay. Exploring, I found another short gallery running transversely to the first. This appeared to be devoted to minerals, and the sight of a block of sulphur set my mind running on gunpowder, but I could find no saltpetre, indeed no nitrates of any kind. Doubtless they had deliquesced ages ago. Yet the sulphur hung in my mind and set up a train of thinking. As for the rest of the contents of that gallery, though on the whole they were the best preserved of all I saw, I had little interest. I am no specialist in mineralogy, and I went down a very ruinous aisle running parallel to the first hall I had entered. Apparently this section had been devoted to natural history, but everything had long since passed out of recognition. A few shriveled and blackened vestiges of what had once been stuffed animals, desiccated mummies in jars that had once held spirit, a brown dust of departed plants, that was all. I was sorry for that, because I should have been glad to trace the patient readjustments by which the conquest of animated nature had been attained. Then we came to a gallery of simply colossal proportions, but singularly ill-lit, the floor of it running downward at a slight angle from the end at which I entered. At intervals white globes hung from the ceiling, many of them cracked and smashed, which suggested that originally the place had been artificially lit. Here I was more in my element, for rising on either side of me were the huge bulks of big machines, all greatly corroded and many broken down, but some still fairly complete. You know I have a certain weakness for mechanism, and I was inclined to linger among these, the more so as for the most part they had the interest of puzzles, and I could make only the vaguest guesses at what they were for. I fancied that if I could solve their puzzles, I should find myself in possession of powers that might be of use against the Morlocks. Suddenly, Weena came very close to my side, so suddenly that she startled me. Had it not been for her, I do not think I should have noticed that the floor of the gallery sloped at all. Footnote, it may be, of course, that the floor did not slope, but that museum was built into the side of a hill. The end I had come in at was quite above ground and was lit by rare slit-like windows. As you went down the length, the ground came up against these windows, until at last there was a pit like the area of a London house before each, and only a narrow line of daylight at the top. I went slowly along, puzzling about the machines, and had been too intent upon them to notice the gradual diminution of the light until Weena's increasing apprehensions drew my attention. Then I saw that the gallery ran down at last into a thick darkness. 
I hesitated. Then, as I looked round me, I saw that the dust was less abundant and its surface less even. Further away, towards the dimness, it appeared to be broken by a number of small, narrow footprints. My sense of the immediate presence of the Morlocks revived at that. I felt that I was wasting my time in the academic examination of machinery. I called to mind that it was already far advanced in the afternoon, and that I had still no weapon, no refuge, and no means of making a fire. Then... Down in the remote blackness of the gallery, I heard a peculiar pattering and the same odd noises I had heard down the well. I took Weena's hand. Then, struck with a sudden idea, I left her and turned to a machine from which projected a lever not unlike those in a signal box. Clambering upon the stand and grasping this lever in my hands, I put all my weight upon it sideways. Suddenly, Wiener, deserted in the central aisle, began to whimper. I had judged the strength of the lever pretty correctly, for it snapped after a minute's strain, and I rejoined her with a mace in my hand, more than sufficient, I judged, for any Morlock's skull I might encounter. And I longed very much to kill a Morlock or so. Very inhuman, you might think, to want to go killing one's own descendants, but it was impossible, somehow, to feel any humanity in the things. Only my disinclination to leave Wiener, and a persuasion that if I began to slake my thirst for murder, my time machine might suffer, restrained me from going straight down the gallery and killing the brutes I heard. Well, Mace in one hand and Wiener in the other... I went out of that gallery, and into another and still larger one, which, at the first glance, reminded me of a military chapel hung with tattered flags. The brown and charred rags that hung from the sides of it I presently recognised as the decaying vestiges of books. They had long since dropped to pieces, and every semblance of print had left them, but here and there there were warped boards and cracked metallic clasps that told the tale well enough. Had I been a literary man, I might perhaps have moralised upon the futility of all ambition. But as it was, the thing that struck me with keenest force was the enormous waste of labour to which this sombre wilderness of rotting paper testified. At the time, I will confess that I thought chiefly of the philosophical transactions and my own seventeen papers upon physical optics. Then, going up in a broad staircase, we came to what may once have been a gallery of technical chemistry, except at one end where the roof had collapsed. This gallery was well preserved. I went eagerly to every unbroken case, and at last, in one of the really airtight cases, I found a box of matches. Very eagerly, I tried them. They were perfectly good. They were not even damp. I turned to Wiener. Dance, I cried to her in her own tongue, for now I had a weapon indeed against the horrible creatures we feared, and so in that derelict museum, upon the thick, soft carpeting of dust, to Wiener's huge delight, I solemnly performed a kind of composite dance, whistling the land of the leal as cheerfully as I could. In part it was a modest can-can, in part a step-dance, in part a skirt-dance, so far as my tailcoat permitted, and in part original, for I am naturally inventive, as you know. Now, I still think that for this box of matches to have escaped the wear of time for immemorial years was a most strange, as for me it was a most fortunate thing. 
Yet, oddly enough, I found a far unlikelier substance, and that was camphor. I found it in a sealed jar that, by chance, I suppose, had been really hermetically sealed. I fancied at first that it was paraffin wax and smashed the glass accordingly, but the odour of camphor was unmistakable. In the universal decay, this volatile substance had chanced to survive, perhaps through many thousands of centuries. It reminded me of a sepia painting I had once seen, done from the ink of a fossil belemnite that must have perished and become fossilised millions of years ago. I was about to throw it away, but I remembered that it was inflammable and burnt with a good bright flame. It was, in fact, an excellent candle, and I put it in my pocket. I found no explosives, however, nor any means of breaking down the bronze doors. As yet, my iron crowbar was the most helpful thing I had chanced upon. Nevertheless, I left that gallery greatly elated. I cannot tell you all the story of that long afternoon. It would require a great effort of memory to recall my explorations in at all the proper order. I remember a long gallery of rusting stands of arms, and how I hesitated between my crowbar and a hatchet or a sword. I could not carry both, however, and my bar of iron promised best against the bronze gates. There were a number of guns, pistols, and rifles, but most were masses of rust, and many were of some new metal and still fairly sound, but any cartridges or powder there may once have been had rotted into dust. One corner I saw was charred and shattered, perhaps, I thought, by an explosion among the specimens. In another place was a vast array of idols, Polynesian, Mexican, Grecian, Phoenician, every country on earth, I should think. And here, yielding to an irresistible impulse, I wrote my name upon the nose of a steatite monster from South America that particularly took my fancy. As the evening drew on, my interest waned. I went through gallery after gallery, dusty, silent, often ruinous. The exhibits sometimes mere heaps of rust and lignite, sometimes fresher. In one place, I suddenly found myself near the model of a tin mine, and then by the merest accident I discovered, in an airtight case, two dynamite cartridges. I shouted, Eureka! and smashed the case with joy. Then came a doubt. I hesitated. Then, selecting a little side gallery... I made my essay. I never felt such a disappointment as I did in waiting five, ten, fifteen minutes for an explosion that never came. Of course, the things were dummies, as I might have guessed from their presence. I really believe that, had they not been so, I should have rushed off incontinently and blown sphinx bronze doors and, as it proved, my chances of finding the time machine altogether into non-existence. It was after that, I think, that we came to a little open court within the palace. It was turfed and had three fruit trees, so we rested and refreshed ourselves. Towards sunset, I began to consider our position. Night was creeping upon us, and my inaccessible hiding place had still to be found. But that troubled me very little now. I had in my possession a thing that was perhaps the best of all defences against the Morlocks. I had matches. I had the camphor in my pocket too, if a blaze were needed. It seemed to me that the best thing we could do would be to pass the night in the open, protected by a fire. In the morning, there was the getting of the time machine. Towards that, as yet, I had only my iron mace. But now, with my growing knowledge, I felt very differently towards those bronze doors. Up to this, 
I had refrained from forcing them, largely because of the mystery on the other side. They had never impressed me as being very strong, and I hoped to find my bar of iron not altogether inadequate for the work. Chapter 12. In the Darkness We emerged from the palace while the sun was still in part above the horizon. I was determined to reach the White Sphinx early the next morning, and ere the dusk I purposed pushing through the woods that had stopped me on the previous journey. My plan was to go as far as possible that night, and then, building a fire, to sleep in the protection of its glare. Accordingly, as we went along, I gathered any sticks or dried grass I saw, and presently had my arms full of such litter. Thus loaded, our progress was slower than I had anticipated, and besides, Weena was tired. And I also began to suffer from sleepiness too, so that it was full night before we reached the wood. Upon the shrubby hill of its edge, Weena would have stopped, fearing the darkness before us, but a singular sense of impending calamity, that should indeed have served me as a warning, drove me onward. I had been without sleep for a night and two days, and I was feverish and irritable. I felt sleep coming upon me, and the Morlocks with it. While we hesitated, among the black bushes behind us and dim against their blackness, I saw three crouching figures. There was scrub and long grass all about us, and I did not feel safe from their insidious approach. The forest, I calculated, was rather less than a mile across. If we could get through it to the bare hillside, there, it seemed to me, was an altogether safer resting place. I thought that with my matches and my camphor I could contrive to keep my path illuminated through the woods. Yet it was evident that if I was to flourish matches with my hands, I should have to abandon my firewood, so rather reluctantly I put it down. And then it came into my head that I would amaze our friends behind by lighting it. I was to discover the atrocious folly of this proceeding, but it came to my mind as an ingenious move for covering our retreat. I don't know if you have ever thought what a rare thing flame must be in the absence of man and in a temperate climate. The sun's heat is rarely strong enough to burn, even when it is focused by dewdrops, as is sometimes the case in more tropical districts. Lightning may blast and blacken, but it rarely gives rise to widespread fire. Decaying vegetation may occasionally smoulder with the heat of its fermentation, but this rarely results in flame. In this decadence, too, the art of fire-making had been forgotten on the earth. The red tongues that went licking up my heap of wood were an altogether new and strange thing to Weena. She wanted to run to it and play with it. I believe she would have cast herself into it had I not restrained her, but I caught her up, and in spite of her struggles, plunged boldly before me into the wood. For a little way the glare of my fire lit the path. Looking back presently, I could see, through the crowded stems, that from my heap of sticks the blaze had spread to some bushes adjacent, and a curved line of fire was creeping up the grass of the hill. I laughed at that, and turned again to the dark trees before me, it was very black, and Weena clung to me convulsively, but there was still, as my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, sufficient light for me to avoid the stems. Overhead, it was simply black, except where a gap of remote blue sky shone down upon us here and there. I lit none of my matches because I had no hand free. Upon my left arm I carried my little one. In my right hand I had my iron bar.
Some way I heard nothing but the crackling twigs under my feet, the faint rustle of the breeze above, and my own breathing and the throb of the blood vessels in my ears. Then I seemed to know of a pattering behind me. I pushed on grimly. The pattering grew more distinct, and then I caught the same queer sound and voices I had heard in the underworld. There were evidently several of the Morlocks, and they were closing in upon me. Indeed, in another minute I felt a tug at my coat, then something at my arm, and Weiner shivered violently and became quite still. It was time for a match. But to get one, I must put her down. I did so, and as I fumbled with my pocket, a struggle began in the darkness about my knees, perfectly silent on her part, and with the same peculiar cooing sounds from the Morlocks. Soft little hands, too, were creeping over my coat and back, touching even my neck. Then the match scratched and fizzed. I held it flaring and saw the white backs of the Morlocks in flight amid the trees. I hastily took a lump of camphor from my pocket and prepared to light it as soon as the match should wane. Then I looked at Weena. She was lying, clutching my feet, and quite motionless, with her face to the ground. With a sudden fright, I stooped to her. She seemed scarcely to breathe. I lit the block of camphor and flung it to the ground, and as it split and flared up and drove back the Morlocks and the shadows, I knelt down and lifted her. The wood behind seemed full of the stir and murmur of a great company. She seemed to have fainted. I put her carefully upon my shoulder and rose to push on, and then there came a horrible realisation. In manoeuvring with my matches and wiener, I had turned myself about several times, and now I had not the faintest idea in what direction lay my path. For all I knew, I might be facing back towards the Palace of Green Porcelain. I found myself in a cold sweat. I had to think rapidly what to do. I determined to build a fire and encamp where we were. I put Wiener still motionless down upon a turfy bowl, and very hastily, as my first lump of camphor waned, I began collecting sticks and leaves. Here and there, out of the darkness round me, the Morlock's eyes shone like carbuncles. The camphor flickered and went out. I lit a match, and as I did so, two white forms that had been approaching Wiener dashed hastily away. One was so blinded by the light that he came straight for me, and I felt his bones grind under the blow of my fist. He gave a whoop of dismay, staggered a little way, and fell down. I lit another piece of camphor, and went on gathering my bonfire. Presently I noticed how dry was some of the foliage above me, for since my arrival on the time machine, a matter of a week, no rain had fallen. So, instead of casting about among the trees for fallen twigs, I began leaping up and dragging down branches. Very soon I had a choking, smoky fire of green wood and dry sticks, and could economise my camphor. Then I turned to where Weiner lay beside my iron mace. I tried what I could to revive her, but she lay like one dead. I could not even satisfy myself whether or not she breathed. Now the smoke of the fire beat over towards me, and it must have made me heavy of a sudden. Moreover, the vapour of camphor was in the air. My fire would not need replenishing for an hour or so. I felt weary after my exertion and sat down. The wood, too, was full of a slumbrous murmur that I did not understand. 
I seemed just to nod and open my eyes, but all was dark, and the Morlocks had their hands upon me. Flinging off their clinging fingers, I hastily felt in my pocket for the matchbox, and it had gone. Then they gripped and closed with me again. In a moment I knew what had happened. I had slept, and my fire had gone out, and the bitterness of death came over my soul. The forest seemed full of the smell of burning wood. I was caught by the neck, by the hair, by the arms, and pulled down. It was so indescribably horrible in the darkness to feel all those soft creatures heaped upon me. I felt as if I was in a monstrous spider's web. I was overpowered and went down. I felt little teeth nipping at my neck. I rolled over, and as I did so, my hand came against my iron lever. It gave me strength. I struggled up, shaking the human rats from me, and holding the bar short, I thrust it where I judged their faces might be. I could feel the succulent giving of flesh and bone under my blows, and for a moment I was free. Strange exultation that so often seems to accompany hard fighting came upon me. I knew that both I and Weena were lost, but I determined to make the Morlocks pay for their meat. I stood with my back to a tree, swinging the iron bar before me. The whole wood was full of the stir and cries of them. A minute passed. Their voices seemed to rise to a higher pitch of excitement, and their movements grew faster, yet none came within reach. I stood glaring at the blackness. Then suddenly came hope. What if the Morlocks were afraid? And close on the heels of that came a strange thing. The darkness seemed to grow luminous, very dimly, I began to see the Morlocks about me, three battered at my feet, and then I recognised with incredulous surprise that the others were running, in an incessant stream, as it seemed, from behind me and away through the wood in front, and their backs seemed no longer white but reddish. As I stood agape, I saw a little red spark go drifting across a gap of starlight between the branches and vanish. And at that I understood the smell of burning wood and the slumberous murmur that was growing now into a gusty roar, the red glow and the Morlock's flight. Stepping out from behind my tree and looking back, I saw through the black pillars of the nearer trees the flames of the burning forest. It was my first fire coming after me. With that, I looked for Weena, but she was gone. The hissing and crackling behind me, the explosive thud as each fresh tree burst into flame, left little time for reflection. My iron bar still gripped. I followed in the Morlock's path. It was a close race. Once the flames crept forward so swiftly on my right as I ran that I was outflanked and had to strike off to the left, but at last I emerged upon a small open space. And as I did so, a Morlock came blundering towards me and passed me and went on straight into the fire. And now I was to see the most weird and horrible thing, I think, of all that I beheld in that future age. This whole space was as bright as day with the reflection of the fire. In the centre was a hillock or tumulus surmounted by a scorched hawthorn. Beyond this was another arm of the burning forest, with yellow tongues already writhing from it, completely encircling the space with a fence of fire. 
upon the hillside were some thirty or forty Morlocks, dazzled by the light and heat, and blundering hither and thither against each other in their bewilderment. At first I did not realise their blindness, and struck furiously at them with my bar in a frenzy of fear as they approached me, killing one and crippling several more. But when I had watched the gestures of one of them groping under the hawthorn against the red sky, and heard their moans, I was assured of their complete helplessness and misery in the glare, and I struck no more of them. Yet every now and then one would come straight towards me, setting loose a quivering horror that made me quick to elude him. At one time the flames died down somewhat, and I feared the foul creatures would presently be able to see me. I was thinking of beginning the fire by killing some of them before this should happen, but the fire burst out again brightly, and I stayed my hand. I walked about the hill among them and avoided them, looking for some trace of Weener, but Weener was gone. At last I sat down on the summit of the hillock and watched this strange, incredible company of blind things groping to and fro and making uncanny noises to each other as the glare of the fire beat on them. The coiling uprush of smoke streamed across the sky, and through the rare tatters of that red canopy, remote as though they belonged to another universe, shone the little stars. Two or three Morlocks came blundering into me, and I drove them off with blows of my fists, trembling as I did so. For the most part of that night, I was persuaded it was a nightmare. I bit myself and screamed in a passionate desire to wake up. I beat to the ground with my hands and got up and sat down again, and wandered here and there and again sat down. Then I would fall to rubbing my eyes and calling upon God to let me awake. Thrice I saw Morlocks put their heads down in a kind of agony and rush into the flames. But at last, above the subsiding red of the fire, came the streaming masses of black smoke, and the whitening and blackening tree stumps, and the diminishing number of these dim creatures, came the white light of the day. I searched again for traces of Weena, but there were none. It was plain that they had left her poor little body in the forest. I cannot describe how it relieved me to think that it had escaped the awful fate to which it seemed destined. As I thought of that, I was almost moved to begin a massacre of the helpless abominations about me, but I contained myself. The hillock, as I have said, was a kind of island in the forest. From its summit I could now make out through a haze of smoke the palace of green porcelain, and from that I could get my bearings for the white sphinx. And so, leaving the remnant of these damned souls still going hither and thither and moaning as the day grew clearer, I tied some grass about my feet and limped on across smoking ashes and among black stems that still pulsated internally with fire towards the hiding place of the time machine. I walked slowly, for I was almost exhausted as well as lame, and I felt the intensest wretchedness for the horrible death of little Weena. It seemed an overwhelming calamity. Now, in this familiar room, it is more like the sorrow of a dream than an actual loss. But that morning it left me absolutely lonely again, terribly alone. I began to think of this house of mine, of this fireside, of some of you, and with such thoughts came a longing that was pain. 
but as I walked over the smoking ashes under the bright morning sky, I made a discovery. In my trouser pocket were still some loose matches. The box must have leaked before it was lost. Chapter 13 The Trap of the White Sphinx About eight or nine in the morning, I came to the same seat of yellow metal from which I had viewed the world upon the evening of my arrival. I thought of my hasty conclusions upon that evening, and could not refrain from laughing bitterly at my confidence. Here was the same beautiful scene, the same abundant foliage, the same splendid palaces and magnificent ruins, the same silver river running between its fertile banks. The gay robes of the beautiful people moved hither and thither among the trees. Some were bathing in exactly the place where I had saved Weena, and that suddenly gave me a keen stab of pain, and like blots upon the landscape rose the capulas above the ways to the underworld. I understood now what all the beauty of the overworld people covered. Very pleasant was their day, as pleasant as the day of the cattle in their field. Like the cattle, they knew of no enemies, and provided against no needs, and their end was the same. I grieved to think how brief the dream of the human intellect had been. It had committed suicide. It had set itself steadfastly towards comfort and ease, a balanced society with security and permanency as its watchword. It had attained its hopes to come to this at last. Once, life and property must have reached almost absolute safety. The rich had been assured of his wealth and comfort, the toiler assured of his life and work. No doubt in that perfect world... There had been no unemployed problem, no social question left unsolved, and a great quiet had followed. It is a law of nature we overlook, that intellectual versatility is the compensation for change, danger and trouble. An animal, perfectly in harmony with its environment, is a perfect mechanism. Nature never appeals to intelligence until habit and instinct are useless. There is no intelligence where there is no change and no need of change. Only those animals partake of intelligence that have to meet a huge variety of needs and dangers. So, as I see it, the upper-world man had drifted towards his feeble prettiness and the underworld to mere mechanical industry. But that perfect state had lacked one thing even for mechanical perfection, absolute permanency. Apparently, as time went on, the feeding of an underworld, however it was affected, had become disjointed. Mother Necessity, who had been staved off for a thousand years, came back again, and she began below. The underworld being in contact with machinery, which, however perfect, still needs some little thought outside habit, had probably retained perforce rather more initiative, if less of every other human character than the upper and when other meat failed them, they turned to what old habit had hitherto forbidden. So I say I saw it in my last view of the world of 802,701. It may be as wrong an explanation as mortal wit could invent. It is how the thing shaped itself to me, and as that, I give it to you. After the fatigues, excitements and terrors of the past few days, and in spite of my grief, this seat and the tranquil view and the warm sunlight were very pleasant. 
I was very tired and sleepy, and soon my theorising passed into dozing. Catching myself at that, I took my own hint, and spreading myself out upon the turf, I had a long and refreshing sleep. I awoke a little before sunsetting. I now felt safe against being caught napping by the Morlocks, and stretching myself, I came on down the hill toward the White Sphinx. I had my crowbar in one hand, and the other hand played with the matches in my pocket. And now came a most unexpected thing. As I approached the pedestal of the Sphinx, I found the bronze valves were open. They had slid down into grooves. At that I stopped short before them, hesitating to enter. Within was a small apartment, and on a raised place in the corner of this was the time machine. I had the small levers in my pocket. So here... After all my elaborate preparations for the Siege of the White Sphinx was a meek surrender. I threw my iron bar away, almost sorry not to use it. A sudden thought came into my head as I stooped towards the portal. For once at least, I grasped the mental operations of the Morlocks. Suppressing a strong inclination to laugh, I stepped through the bronze frame and up to the time machine. I was surprised to find it had been carefully oiled and cleaned. I have suspected since that the Morlocks had even partially taken it to pieces while trying in their dim way to grasp its purpose. Now, as I stood and examined it, finding a pleasure in the mere touch of the contrivance, the thing I had expected happened. The bronze panels suddenly slip up and struck the frame with a clang. I was in the dark. Trapped. So the Morlocks thought. At that, I chuckled gleefully. I could already hear their murmuring laughter as they came towards me. Very calmly, I tried to strike the match. I had only to fix on the levers and depart them like a ghost, but I had overlooked one little thing. The matches were of that abominable kind that light only on the box. You may imagine how all my calm vanished. The little brutes were close upon me. One touched me. I made a sweeping blow in the dark at them with the levers and began to scramble into the saddle of the machine. Then came one hand upon me, and then another. Then I had simply to fight against their persistent fingers for my levers, and at the same time feel for the studs over which these fitted. One indeed... They almost got away from me. As it slipped from my hand, I had to butt in the dark with my head. I could hear the Morlock's skull ring to recover it. It was a nearer thing than the fight in the forest, I think, this last scramble. But at last, the lever was fixed and pulled over. The clinging hands slipped from me. The darkness presently fell from my eyes. I found myself in the same grey light and tumult I have already described. Chapter 14. The Further Vision I have already told you of the sickness and confusion that comes with time-travelling, and this time I was not seated properly in the saddle, but sideways and in an unstable fashion. For an indefinite time I clung to the machine as it swayed and vibrated, quite unheeding how I went, and when I brought myself to look at the dials again, I was amazed to find where I had arrived. One dial records days, and another thousands of days, another millions of days, and another thousands of millions. Now, instead of reversing the levers, I had pulled them over so as to go forward with them. And when I came to look at these indicators, I found that the thousands hand was sweeping round as fast as the second hands of a watch, into futurity. 
As I drove on, a peculiar change crept over the appearance of things. The palpitating greyness grew darker. Then, though I was still travelling with prodigious velocity, the blinking succession of day and night, which was usually indicative of a slower pace, returned and grew more and more marked. This puzzled me very much at first. The alternations of night and day grew slower and slower, and so did the passage of the sun across the sky, until they seemed to stretch through centuries. At last, a steady twilight brooded over the earth, a twilight only broken now and then when a comet glared across the darkling sky. The band of light that had indicated the sun had long since disappeared, for the sun had ceased to set. It simply rose and fell in the west, and grew ever broader and more red. All trace of the moon had vanished. The circling of the stars, growing slower and slower, had given place to creeping points of light. At last, some time before I stopped, the sun, red and very large, halted motionless upon the horizon, a vast dome glowing with a dull heat, and now and then suffering a momentary extinction. At one time it had for a little while glowed more brilliantly again, but it speedily reverted to its sullen red heat. I perceived by this slowing down of its rising and setting that the work of the tidal drag was done. The earth had come to rest with one face to the sun, even as in our own time the moon faces the earth. Very cautiously, for I remembered my former headlong fall, I began to reverse my motion. Slower and slower went the circling hands, until the thousands one seemed motionless, and the daily one was no longer a mere mist upon its scale. Still slower, until the dim outlines of a desolate beach grew visible. I stopped very gently and sat upon the time machine, looking round. The sky was no longer blue. Northeastwards it was inky black, and out of the blackness shone brightly and steadily the pale white stars. Overhead it was a deep Indian red and starless, and southeastward it grew brighter to a glowing scarlet where, cut by the horizon, lay the huge hull of the sun, red and motionless. The rocks about me were of a harsh reddish colour, and all the trace of life that I could see at first was the intensely green vegetation that covered every projecting point on their southeastern face. It was the same rich green that one sees on a forest moss or on the lichen in caves, plants which, like these, grow in perpetual twilight. The machine was standing on a sloping beach. The sea stretched away to the southwest to rise into a sharp, bright horizon against the wan sky. There were no breakers and no waves, for not a breath of wind was stirring. Only a slight oily swell rose and fell like a gentle breathing, and it showed that the eternal sea was still moving and living and along the margin where the water sometimes broke was a thick incrustation of salt pink under the lurid sky. There was a sense of oppression in my head, and I noticed that I was breathing very fast. The sensation reminded me of my only experience of mountaineering, and from that I judged the air to be more rarefied than it is now. Far away, up the desolate slope, I heard a harsh scream and I saw a thing like a huge white butterfly go slanting and fluttering up into the sky, and circling disappear over some low hillocks beyond. The sound of its voice was so dismal that I shivered, 
and seated myself more firmly upon the machine. Looking round me again, I saw that, quite near, what I had taken to be a reddish mass of rock was moving slowly towards me. Then I saw the thing was really a monstrous crab-like creature. Can you imagine a crab as large as yonder table, with its many legs moving slowly and uncertainly, its big claws swaying, its long antennae like carter's whips waving and feeling, and its stalked eyes gleaming at you on either side of its metallic front? Its back was corrugated and ornamented with ungainly bosses, and a greenish incrustation blotched it here and there. I could see the many palps of its complicated mouth flickering and feeling as it moved. As I stared at this sinister apparition crawling towards me, I felt a tickling on my cheek as though a fly had lighted there. I tried to brush it away with my hand, but in a moment it returned, and almost immediately came another by my ear. I struck at this and caught something thread-like. It was drawn swiftly out of my hand. With a frightful qualm, I turned, and I saw that I had grasped the antennae of another monstrous crab that stood just behind me. Its evil eyes were wriggling on their stalks, its mouth was all alive with appetite, and its vast, ungainly claws, smeared with an algal slime, were descending upon me. In a moment, my hand was on the lever, and I had placed a month between myself and these monsters, but I was still on the same beach, and I saw them distinctly now as soon as I stopped. Dozens of them seemed to be crawling here and there in the sombre light among the foliated sheets of intense green. I cannot convey the sense of abominable desolation that hung over the world. The red eastern sky, the northward blackness, the salt dead sea, the stony beach crawling with these foul, slow-stirring monsters, the uniform, poisonous-looking green of the lichenous plants, the thin air that hurts one's lungs, all contributed to an appalling effect. I moved on a hundred years, and there was the same red sun, a little larger, a little duller, the same dying sea, the same chill air, and the same crowd of earthy crustacea creeping in and out among the green weed and the red rocks, and in the western sky I saw a curved pale line, like a vast new moon. So I travelled, stopping ever and again in great strides of a thousand years or more, drawn on by the mystery of the earth's fate, watching with a strange fascination the sun grow larger and duller in the westward sky, and the life of the old earth ebb away. At last, more than thirty million years hence, the huge red-hot dome of the sun had come to obscure nearly a tenth part of the darkling heavens. Then I stopped once more, for the crawling multitude of crabs had disappeared, and the red beach, save for its livid green liverworts and lichens, seemed lifeless. And now it was flecked with white. A bitter cold assailed me. Rare white flakes ever and again came eddying down. To the north-eastward the glare of snow lay under the starlight of the sable sky, and I could see an undulating crest of hillocks, pinkish-white. There were fringes of ice along the sea margin, with drifting masses further out, but the main expanse of that salt ocean, all bloody under the eternal sunset, was still unfrozen. I looked about me, to see if any traces of animal life remained. A certain indefinable apprehension still kept me in the saddle of the machine, but I saw nothing moving in earth or sky or sea. The green slime in the rocks alone testified that life was not extinct, 
A shallow sandbank had appeared in the sea, and the water had receded from the beach. I fancied I saw some black object flopping about upon this bank, but it became motionless as I looked at it, and I judged that my eye had been deceived, and that the black object was merely a rock. The stars in the sky were intensely bright, and seemed to me to twinkle very little. Suddenly I noticed that the circular westward outline of the sun had changed, that a concavity, a bay, had appeared in the curve. I saw this grow larger. For a minute, perhaps, I stared aghast at this blackness that was creeping over the day, and then I realised that an eclipse was beginning. Either the moon or the planet Mercury was passing across the sun's disk. Naturally, at first I took it to be the moon, but there is much to incline me to believe that what I really saw was the transit of an inner planet passing very near to the Earth. The darkness grew apace, a cold wind began to blow in freshening gusts from the east, and the showering white flakes in the air increased in number. From the edge of the sea came a ripple and a whisper. Beyond these lifeless sounds, the world was silent. Silent? It would be hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleating of sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, the stir that makes the background of our lives, all that was over and the darkness thickened, the eddying flakes grew more abundant, dancing before my eyes, and the cold of the air more intense. At last, one by one, swiftly, one after the other, the white peaks of the distant hills vanished into blackness. The breeze rose to a moaning wind. I saw the black central shadow of the eclipse sweeping towards me. In another moment, the pale stars alone were visible. All else was rayless obscurity. The sky was absolutely black. A horror of this great darkness came upon me. The cold that smote to my marrow and the pain I felt in breathing overcame me. I shivered and a deadly nausea seized me. Then, like a red-hot bow in the sky, appeared the edge of the sun. I got off the machine to recover myself. I felt giddy and incapable of facing the return journey. As I stood sick and confused, I saw again the moving thing upon the shoal. There was no mistake now that it was a moving thing against the red water of the sea. It was a round thing, the size of a football perhaps, or it may be bigger, and tentacles trailed down from it. It seemed black against the weltering blood-red water, and it was hopping fitfully about. Then I felt I was fainting, but a terrible dread of lying helpless in that remote and awful twilight sustained me while I clambered upon the saddle. Chapter 15 The Time Traveller's Return So I came back. For a long time I must have been insensible upon the machine. The blinking succession of the days and nights was resumed. The sun got golden again. The sky blue. I breathed with greater freedom. The fluctuating contours of the land ebbed and flowed. The hands spun backward upon the dials. At last I saw again the dim shadows of houses, the evidences of decadent humanity. These two changed and passed, and others came. Presently... 
When the million dial was at zero, I slackened speed. I began to recognise our own pretty and familiar architecture. The thousands hand ran back to the starting point. The night and day flapped slower and slower. Then the old walls of the laboratory came around me. Very gently now, I slowed the mechanism down. I saw one little thing that seemed odd to me. I think I have told you that when I set out, before my velocity became very high, Mrs. Watchit had walked across the room, travelling, as it seemed to me, like a rocket. As I returned, I passed again across that minute when she traversed the laboratory, but now her every motion appeared to be the exact inversion of her previous ones. The door at the lower end opened, and she glided quietly upon the laboratory, back foremost, and disappeared behind the door by which she had previously entered. Just before that, I seemed to see Hillier for a moment, but he passed like a flash. Then I stopped the machine, and saw about me again the old familiar laboratory, my tools, my appliances, just as I had left them. I got off the thing very shakily and sat down upon my bench. For several minutes I trembled violently, then I became calmer. Around me was my old workshop again, exactly as it had been. I might have slept there and the whole thing had been a dream. And yet, not exactly. The thing had started from the southeast corner of the laboratory. It had come to rest again in the northwest against the wall where you saw it. That gives you the exact distance from my little lawn to the pedestal of the white sphinx into which the Morlocks had carried my machine. For a time, my brain went stagnant. Presently, I got up and came through the passage here, limping because my heel was still painful and feeling sorely begrimed. I saw the Pall Mall Gazette on the table by the door. I found the date was indeed today, and looking at the timepiece saw the hour was almost eight o'clock. I heard your voices and the clatter of plates. I hesitated. I felt so sick and weak. Then I sniffed good, wholesome meat and opened the door on you. You know the rest. I washed and dined, and now I am telling you the story. Chapter 16 After the Story I know, he said after a pause, that all this will be absolutely incredible to you. But to me, the one incredible thing is that I am here tonight in this old familiar room, looking into your friendly faces and telling you these strange adventures. He looked at the medical man. No, I cannot expect you to believe it. Take it as a lie or a prophecy. Say I dreamed it in the workshop. Consider I have been speculating upon the destinies of our race until I have hatched this fiction. Treat my assertion of its truth as a mere stroke of art to enhance its interest. And, taking it as a story, what do you think of it? He took up his pipe and began, in his old accustomed manner, to tap it nervously upon the bars of the grate. There was a momentary stillness. Then chairs began to creak and shoes to scrape upon the carpet. I took my eyes off the time-traveller's face and looked round at his audience. They were in the dark, and little spots of colour swam before them. The medical man seemed absorbed in the contemplation of our host. The editor was looking hard at the end of his cigar, the sixth. The journalist fumbled for his watch. The others, as far as I remember, were motionless. The editor stood up with a sigh. "'What a pity it is that you're not a writer of stories,' he said, putting his hand on the time-traveller's shoulder. "'You don't believe it?' "'Well, 
I thought not. The time traveller turned to us. Where are the matches? he said. He lit one and spoke over his pipe, puffing. To tell you the truth, I hardly believe it myself. And yet... His eye fell with a mute inquiry upon the withered white flowers upon the little table. Then he turned over the hand holding his pipe, and I saw he was looking at some half-healed scars on his knuckles. The medical man rose, came to the lamp, and examined the flowers. "'The gynaceum's odd,' he said. The psychologist leant forward to see, holding out his hand for a specimen. "'I'm hanged if it isn't a quarter to one,' said the journalist. "'How shall we get home?' "'Plenty of cabs at the station,' said the psychologist. "'It's a curious thing,' said the medical man. "'But I certainly don't know the natural order of these flowers. "'May I have them?' "'The time-traveller hesitated. "'Then suddenly, certainly not. "'Where did you really get them?' said the medical man. "'The time-traveller put his hand to his head. "'He spoke like one who was trying to keep hold of an idea that eluded him. "'They were put into my pocket by Wiener when I travelled into time.' He stared round the room. I'm damned if it isn't all going. This room and you and the atmosphere of every day is too much for my memory. Did I ever make a time machine or a model of a time machine? Or is it all only a dream? They say life is a dream, a precious poor dream at times, but I can't stand another that won't fit. It's madness. Where did the dream come from? I must look at that machine, if there is one. He caught up the lamp swiftly and carried it, flaring red, through the door into the corridor. We followed him. There, in the flickering light of the lamp, was the machine, sure enough, squat, ugly and askew, a thing of brass, ebony, ivory and translucent glimmering quartz, solid to the touch, for I put out my hand and felt the rail of it, and with brown spots and smears upon the ivory, and bits of grass and moss upon the lower parts, and one rail bent awry. The time-traveller put the lamp down on the bench and ran his hand along the damaged rail. "'It's all right now,' he said. "'The story I told you was true. I'm sorry to have brought you out here in the cold.' He took up the lamp, and in an absolute silence we returned to the smoking-room. He came into the hall with us and helped the editor on with his coat. The medical man looked into his face and, with a certain hesitation, told him he was suffering from overwork, at which he laughed hugely. I remember him standing in the open doorway, bawling good night. I shared a cab with the editor. He thought the tale was a gaudy lie. For my own part, I was unable to come to a conclusion. The story was so fantastic and incredible, the telling so credible and sober. I lay awake most of the night thinking about it. I determined to go next day and see the time-traveller again. I was told he was in the laboratory, and being on easy terms in the house, I went up to him. The laboratory, however, was empty. I stared for a minute at the time-machine and put out my hand and touched the lever. At that, the squat, substantial-looking mass swayed like a bow shaken by the wind. Its instability startled me extremely, and I had a queer reminiscence of the childish days when I used to be forbidden to meddle. I came back through the corridor. The time-traveller met me in the smoking-room. He was coming from the house. He had a small camera under one arm and a knapsack under the other. He laughed when he saw me and gave me an elbow to shake. "'I'm frightfully busy,' said he, with that thing in there." "'But is it not some hoax?' I said. "'Do you really travel through time?' 
Really and truly, I do. And he looked frankly into my eyes. He hesitated. His eye wandered around the room. I only want half an hour, he said. I know why you came, and it's awfully good of you. There's some magazines here. If you'll stop to lunch, I'll prove you this time travelling up to the hilt, specimens and all. If you'll forgive my leaving you now. I consented, hardly comprehending then the full import of his words, and he nodded and went on down the corridor. I heard the door of the laboratory slam, seated myself in a chair, and took up a daily paper. What was he going to do before lunchtime? Then suddenly I was reminded by an advertisement that I had promised to meet Richardson, the publisher, at two. I looked at my watch and saw that I could barely save that engagement. I got up and went down the passage to tell the time-traveller. As I took hold of the handle of the door, I heard an exclamation, oddly truncated at the end, and a click and a thud. A gust of air whirled round me as I opened the door, and from within came the sound of broken glass falling on the floor. The time-traveller was not there. I seemed to see a ghostly, indistinct figure sitting in a whirling mass of black and brass for a moment, a figure so transparent that the bench behind, with its sheets of drawings, was absolutely distinct. But this phantasm vanished as I rubbed my eyes. The time-traveller had gone. Save for a subsiding stir of dust, the further end of the laboratory was empty. A pane of the skylight had apparently just been blown in. I felt an unreasonable amazement. I knew that something strange had happened, and for the moment could not distinguish what the strange thing might be. As I stood staring, the door into the garden opened, and the manservant appeared. We looked at each other. Then ideas began to come. "'Has Mr. Blank gone out that way?' said I. "'No, sir. No one has come out this way. I was expecting to find him here.' At that I understood. At the risk of disappointing Richardson, I stayed on, waiting for the time-traveller, waiting for the second, perhaps still stranger, story, and the specimens and photographs he would bring with him. But I am now beginning to fear that I must wait a lifetime. The time-traveller vanished three years ago, and as everybody knows now, he has never returned. Epilogue One cannot choose but wonder. Will he ever return? It may be that he has swept back into the past and fell among the blood-drinking hairy savages in the age of unpolished stone, into the abysses of the Cretaceous Sea, or among the grotesque Saurians, the huge reptilian brutes of the Jurassic times. He may even now, if I may use the phrase, be wandering on some plesiosaurus-haunted oolitic coral reef, or beside the lonely saline seas of the Triassic Age. Or did he go forward? into one of the nearer ages, in which men are still men, but with the riddles of our own time answered and its wearisome problems solved, into the manhood of the race. For I, for my own part, cannot think that these latter days of weak experiment, fragmentary theory and mutual discord are indeed man's culminating time. I say for my own part. He, I know, for the question had been discussed among us long before the time machine was made, thought but cheerlessly of the advancement of mankind, and saw in the growing pile of civilization only a foolish heaping that must inevitably fall back upon and destroy its makers in the end. If that is so, it remains for us to live as though it were not so. But to me, the future is still black and blank. 
is a vast ignorance, lit at a few casual places by the memory of his story, and I have by me, for my comfort, two strange white flowers, shriveled now and brown and flat and brittle, to witness that even when mind and strength had gone, gratitude and a mutual tenderness still lived on in the heart of man. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to this final instalment of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Please do consider becoming a patron of The Well-Told Tale by visiting patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. Your support there will help me keep these weekly episodes free for everyone, and there are also patron-only benefits of signing up. That's all for this time. I'll be back next week with a new story. I hope you can join me. <laughs>